I was watching television, flipping through the channels, trying to find something to watch. And I thought I was watching something out of Beirut or Afghanistan. And then they said Oklahoma. And it totally floored me. I'm thinking, how could this have happened in the United States? And immediately the U.S. began to suspect, you know, was it Libya, was it Afghanistan, Iran, all these Middle Eastern countries or other terrorists, uh, North Korea. And all of them said, you know, that was not us. That was just not us. We're, we're serious. That was not us. And as people began to investigate and, and the part of a truck was identified and then that rental truck was identified to a certain place and people began to get investigated, one of the biggest shocks, aside from the tragedies that ensued from this event, one of the biggest shock I got and many of my friends had was that this was done by an American. This was done by a U.S. citizen. It just completely floored me. How could someone that was born and raised, and he was in the army, he had served to protect, and now he was the culprit behind such a heinous act that caused so much suffering and pain, uh, injuring 450 people, killing 168, including 19 children, which later, um, when he was investigated, he did say that he did not realize that there was a daycare center uh, the building that he bombed. But he then said, I would have done it anyways. I would have still have done it. That would not have deterred me from doing the act that I did. Timothy McVeigh has become somewhat of a, a mystery. What goes through the mind of someone that goes from childhood, celebrating 4th of July, and singing patriotic hymns, and going to school and pledging allegiance to the flag, I came to this country when I was 11, and I became a, a U.S. citizen uh, by choice in my early 30s. And I've come to appreciate all that this country has offered my family and I in the short time that we've been here. And it just for me, through all the hardships and all the sacrifices my parents made so my brother and I could be in this country, to think that an American, what has to happen in the mind of a U.S. citizen that it would come to the point in not just thinking about this or writing about it, but actually doing it. That is to me a mystery. And I'm not sure if any other people could understand. We could psychoanalyze the individual and come to conclusions. But something has to happen. There, this doesn't happen overnight. But clearly, there is something that envelops the mind of an individual like Timothy McVeigh in a distorted view of reality in which these lenses are put on that when he watches the news, when he sees the governments, when he sees the decisions that our, our uh, of government officials make, everything is tainted and distorted by these lenses that make things worse and worse and worse to the point where he feels he has done something good for humanity. He was convinced he was doing something that would help our country be better by taking the lives of innocent individuals, including the lives of children. We have in the Bible also points of tension. The Bible presents with unequivocal words, a description of God in many places. 
But the summary that is given in 1 John 4, 8 simply says, for God is what, my friends? God is love. And yet even the Oklahoma bombing, later on the 9-11 tragedies with the Twin Towers, and events of that magnitude really become a global phenomenon that causes people to ask those questions. But on a micro level, like I told you, when I was a nurse and I would have to do my rounds both in the geriatric parts of nurse practice and then in the neonatal aspect of nursing care. And I would see the human plight at the beginning as, as soon as we were born, children with malfunctioning hearts, malfunctioning digestive systems, sometimes neurological problems, genetic issues. And then individuals that had lived an entire life quite healthy and yet find themselves losing their memory, forgetting who they are, forgetting family members. Is that evil as well? See, we don't need a bomb to experience evil. Why does evil exist? Because if the Bible wants me to believe in a God and then tells me, by the way, the God that we are inviting you to believe in can be defined most beautifully and in a summarized manner as a God of love, a God that is love, not a loving God, but a God that is the source of love. He is the, the, the substance, the emanation of what we call love. And then we look around. How can, we, how can those two realities be reconciled? Either what our senses tell us is true and there is evil in this world. And if there is a God, and like the Bible presents a God that is all-powerful and yet loving, we ask ourselves, and at a personal level, we are demonstrating that we are humans when we have asked why. Why my grandma? Why my child? When that fireman, that, that became um, emblematic image of that event at Oklahoma, but also he became a source of many skeptics and many doubters of the Bible and many doubters of God's existence to say, there's the evidence as to why I choose to believe in science and reject any notion of anyone trying to convince me that there is some benign, all-powerful being somewhere out there because when I see this, it is evidence to me that such a being does not exist. And if he should, I have issues with that being. So Christianity, a lot of times, becomes a caricature in which people simply adopt the culture of behaviors. Going to church, going inside a building, hearing some preacher or pastor or priest say some words, not even understand what happens, they just go back home thinking, I'm a Christian. Not realizing that Christianity confronts humanity with that unsurmountable tension. If the simplest verse in the Bible defines and declares God to be love, where did evil come from? Did God create evil? Did God create beings that were evil and then beings that were good? How does this work? How can we be reconciled? Because we can't have it both ways. I've told some of my friends that when I was a missionary, I had friends that were missionaries as well, and they are no longer, they are no longer missionaries. They are no longer Christians. And when I speak with them as to what happened, how could them and I have been arm in arm going into neighborhoods, seeking for individuals to let them know about the God of the Bible, about Jesus Christ, about his grace, about his love, he told me, I can't, I can't ignore evil, Ariel. 
I can't just ignore evil. And that's why I've left. I've left Christianity. And he was being sincere. He thought that the way he understood Christianity was something like this. Before you and I were even created, God had already picked some to have eternal life and some to be lost and be evil. And so it wasn't even our choice. And when that kind of Christianity was explained to my friend, he checked out. And yet there are many Christians that espouse that view of God, never thinking things through. If God foreordains certain humans for salvation and grace and holiness, and yet others arbitrarily by his own choice to perdition, hell, and condemnation, therefore they are the evil ones, then God has determined some humans to be evil and some to be good. And then in that model, who is to blame for evil? God himself. So, I grew up, the, the child of missionaries, never even thinking about these things. It wasn't until I was in college talking to some of my friends, friends of mine that were Jewish, that were as atheist as atheists can be. And I couldn't think, how could you be Jewish and an atheist? And they're like, because I've read Torah, and I just can't stomach that. I have better peace, and I can sleep at night knowing, believing, coming to the conclusion, there is no fairy God out there. Therefore, I won't have to find answers to the existence of evil. Evil is just there, and I try to do good, as much as good as possible to undo that evil. And I can sleep much better at night than trying to think, how can there be a God of love up there and get the Holocaust? That's why my friend Leif, one of the major reasons my friend Leif, left Judaism and became a cultural Jew, espousing atheism while only enjoying the culture of Judaism. And there are many Christians that imperceptibly are cultural Christians, not really sure in whom they believe in until a crisis hits their lives. And then they find themselves unprepared to answer the big question of faith. We learned, as our friend Gunther mentioned earlier, that the book of Revelation last night, we compared it to a Rubik's Cube. There is a system. There are principles. And we looked at those last night. And we know we are on a right track if, as we begin to apply the keys of revelation that actually come from the book itself, the book itself is letting us know it's highly symbolic, and the book itself tells us that the vast amount, the 75% of the content of the book of revelation comes from what part of the Bible, you that were here last night, what, what part of the Bible is largely in the, in the book of revelation? The Old Testament. That's correct. Uh, over 75% of the book of Revelation comes from the Old Testament. So when we begin to apply these tools, we will be able to interpret, and not just simply to say, oh, that's what that is, or that's what that is. In the end, when the book of Revelation begins with the words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, those words are monumental. Because if you read the Gospels, you will hear Jesus make this statement. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In other words, you want to know what God is like? That's me. I am the revelation of God's heart. So in the book of Revelation, like any other part of the Bible, we will have one of the most eloquent, beautiful, 
and intelligent and reasonable answers as to why there is evil in this world. Why I never got to meet my grandpa. Why did he die when I was eight years old and I never got to talk with him? I only know him by stories. But diabetes and other diseases took my grandpa away too soon. Evil, I won't have to ask this question. Evil has touched every single one of us here tonight. One way or another, evil has touched our lives. So we turn to these 10 keys. Last night we looked at these first two and we apply them. We actually began to use them and we will do that every night. I'm not just going to tell you, oh, this is the key. We're actually going to apply and make use of them. Last night we saw that the book of Revelation is symbolic. Most of it is symbols. Um, major use of the Old Testament. Tonight, we will see that it has ordered structures. Uh, in the following nights, as you have seen in the schedule, we will look at how the prophecies center on Christ. And what does that mean? Two entire nights looking at the Messiah and Jesus Christ. Um, the sanctuary imagery, uh, we're going to be uh, looking at that through the book of Revelation. We're also going to be looking at historical applications, hearing and seeing, recapitulation. Don't worry, these will get added onto your handouts as we progress. For the sake of space, I've left these out of the handouts, but if you want to take a screenshot, you're welcome to. Hearing and seeing, recapitulation, panorama, and we will conclude by looking at Revelation's sevens. They are a series of sevens, and as we progress each night, you'll begin to see that far from being a disorganized, chaotic book with words just thrown all over the place, the book of Revelation is just a masterpiece, a literary masterpiece with so many genres beautifully intertwined and interweaved one from the other. There's poetry, there's eschatology, there's history, there's, symbol there's symbolic language. All of these things could not have come from a human mind. I said this last night. The only true author of the book of Revelation could have only have been God because John's mind could not have intertwined and taken all these stories and narratives from the Old Testament and given them beautiful meaning and application for our days. Pop quiz time, so that you guys will start fading out, okay? Pop quiz time. What is the blessing that we read last night from the book of Revelation that sometimes we have a hard time doing? And it's a part of a children's song. Maybe that will help you remember. <laughs> read your Bible, pray every day. We sang that this weekend. Uh, we had a family retreat with my family, and we sang that with our children. Read your Bible, pray every day. The book of Revelation pronounces a blessing on anyone that opens the book of Revelation and does what with it? Reads it. So I want to appeal to you again tonight. Whether you have read it before, read it again. And if you've never read the book of Revelation, listen, um, you don't get to swim by watching a PowerPoint, right? You, get, you learn to swim by jumping into the pool or the lake. We have lots of lakes here in Michigan. And so the only way that you and I will get acquainted with the book of Revelation is by opening the book and doing what with it? So I'm appealing to you again tonight. Don't be intimidated. Don't try to interpret. Just read it straight through. Become familiar. And as you become familiar with the keys, you will begin to see the structure and beauty that is inherent in this book. Tonight, we will see how the book of Revelation has ordered structures. It is not chaotic and disorganized. We will look at this uh, more up close towards the end of the series. But just so that you become aware of these, um, the book of Revelation uh, lists seven churches. The book of Revelation has seven seals, seven trumpets, trumpets, seven last plagues, and seven blessings. So 
as people began to read the book of Revelation and study it, they began to see these patterns of sevens throughout the book. And there's meaning to their sequence, and there's meaning to their relationship to one another, why God picked specifically these types of sevens to be there. Um, as an example of the seven churches, um, each message, is, these are right off the bat, Revelation chapter 1 or Revelation chapter 2, 2 and 3. Um, the seven churches, each of the messages that the churches receive in the book of Revelation have the same structure as well. They begin with a description of Jesus, an evaluation of the church by Jesus saying, I know. Uh, there's a praise or a correction given to the church by Jesus. There's counsel and warning from the Spirit to the church, and it always ends with a promise. No matter how bad the church is, how unfaithful the church is, um, God promises, God, God concludes in a positive, hopeful note that he holds the capacity to restore any fallen church back to health. You will see this same pattern on all seven churches. So there is, like I said, far from this organization, there is highly organized and intentional order in the book of Revelation. Tonight, I'm going to introduce you to something that is quite uniquely to Hebrew writings. Chiastic structures are not just in the book of Revelation. They are all over in the book of Psalms. You see them quite frequently in the book of Proverbs, in the book of Exodus. Um, and tonight, we're going to be looking at chiastic structures, and I can almost hear from your mind the question, what in the world is a chiastic structure, right? What is that? Um, I've underlined that the first three letters, chi, because that's actually how you're supposed to sound it, sound it. But in English, we don't have any letter that sounds ch. That's unique to Hebrew. And so we can ask our friend Jeremy, who he can affirm that that is a Hebrew sound from, from the alphabet. And so the Greeks, when they would try to transliterate things, they would use certain letters to try to make them sound like Hebrew. And so in Hebrew, I'm sorry, in Greek, that letter is what we would call the letter X. And so... When we look at the Greek and English alphabet, C-H-I would be the equivalent of X. Now, the reason you're seeing a C in your screen is because the computer that I have at home, I downloaded a font for Greek and Hebrew uh, letters because of some of the, the software that I use. But our church's computer has not yet downloaded that font. So don't, don't get, don't say, Pastor said it's an X, but I see a letter C out there. Well, that's the reason of technology. That's why I told you that Jesus doesn't use PowerPoint, right? But if you look at the letter X, it makes a sound ch. And that's where scholars came up with the word chiastic. Why? To confuse everyone. Because they could have done it a lot simpler. And tonight we're going to do it simple. Do you guys like simple? I like simple. So a chiastic structure, I'm going to show it to you, is a phrase that it said, and then is repeated again, but the order is reversed. What was at the beginning, I guess we're reading left to right. What is at the beginning now becomes at the end, and what was at the end becomes part of the beginning. We're going to look at that expression, the Lord is good, merciful is the Lord. That's one of the Psalms. And in the Psalms, you see chiastic structures. And what we see is that the first stanza says, the Lord is good. The second stanza says, merciful is the Lord. And this is the chiastic structure right here. It's quite simple. It's just simply the second stanza reversing the order of what was said earlier, 
but using slightly different words. Why did the Jewish mind, I believe it was the Lord inspiring them, but why did the Hebrews write this way? To help individuals understand the meaning of certain words, that certain words are related to one another. In this case, the Lord is of what quality? The Lord is good. But what does that mean that the Lord is good? The second stanza will shed light as to what that goodness is about the Lord because the second stanza begins with what word? Merciful. The Lord's goodness is manifested through his mercy. So when you read through the Psalms, sometimes you'll be like, man, this is so tedious. Why are they repeating the same thing? That is Hebrew poetry. Hebrew, when they write a poetic language, they they write their poetry, they're not trying to rhyme phonetically like we do. My, My friends will probably be able to finish this poem correctly. Roses are red, violets are blue. I want you to know that I love pizza. We've done this before. Pizza, right? <laughs> Why did you say you? <laughs> if you know me, you, you should have said pizza. But why did you say you? Roses are red, violets are blue. I want you to know that I love you. In, in English, if you're going to write a poem, it, it has to rhyme phonetically. The sounds have to rhyme, but not so in Hebrew. In Hebrew, what rhymes are the thoughts. You may want to write that down. In Hebrew poetry, what rhymes are the thoughts. Because then as the the thoughts are repeated, they expand on each other and they give you understanding of words and phrases. I have learned a lot about God by understanding this simple Hebrew structure of poetry and eschatology, meaning writings that are prophetic for end times. In the book of Revelation, there are a lot of chiastic structures, but... More than that, the entire book of Revelation, as we will see in just a little bit, is one giant chiastic structure. Before we get there, though, I want us to understand we can't read the Bible as if it was written by an American. The Bible was written by a Jew named John, who was a follower of a rabbi named Jesus, or Yeshua. And they wrote in a way that the Hebrew mind thought. In Western narratives, just like our movies, just like our TV shows, the climax is always when? When all the things blow up and the hero gets the girl. When does that happen? At the end. Not so in Hebrew writing. In Western style thinking, we go from A, B, C, the plot develops, and finally, at the end, you know, all the fireworks go off because that's the climax of the story. But when Hebrews would write, when Jewish people would write, especially inspired under the Holy Spirit, this is what a Hebrew chiastic structure looks like. It makes a statement, makes another statement, and right at the center is the climax, the main point as to why they're writing. The reason and the climax of the entire written record, it climaxed like a mountain. Here is the main point. The reason I am writing whatever it is that I'm writing is not right at the end, it's right in the middle. Just like climbing a mountain, when we read Hebrew poetic or Hebrew eschatology, end time events, like the book of Revelation, 
You don't find the punchline at the end. You will find it in the middle, in the very center of the book. And this is why it's called a chiastic structure because it also looks almost like an X. And so without much ado, let's just look at the chiastic structure that is comprised by the entire book of Revelation. And when we look at that book of Revelation, we will see the burden of God in giving this book. The climax, the main point of why the book of Revelation was given. So it begins with a prologue, letter A at the top. Maybe I'll turn around. Letter A at the top corresponds with letter A at the bottom. There's a prologue and there's an epilogue. It continues with letter B, promises to the overcomers, and that B corresponds way almost at the end of the book, fulfillment of the promises to the overcomers. Followed by letter C, God's work for humanity's salvation, corresponding to C, God's work for humanity's salvation completed. God's wrath mixed with mercy, that's letter D, corresponds to God's final wrath unmixed with mercy. Letter E, commissioning to give the prophetic message, corresponding to this E, proclaiming the end time prophetic message, and right in the middle of the book, you see this great war between Christ and Satan. And my friends, the reason that is there is because there is where we find the answer to the existence of evil. God is not a the cancer. God is not ignoring NICU. God is not ignoring the Oklahoma bombing. God is hope, not saying, oh, I hope they don't notice. I hope they didn't take notice of that. God is more aware than we are of evil. More than this. God knows where it started. And through his word, he answers the question that he knows plagues us, haunts us, keeps us up at night, and has led many people to renounce their faith in him. Because they refuse to go to the source to get the answer. Where, why is there evil? God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? In fact, God is so transparent. God is not afraid of our questions. He welcomes them. He wants dialogue. There's a verse in Isaiah chapter 1 that says, Come, let us reason together. I was so illiterate of the Bible. The very book that highlights God's transparency and wanting us to, to, he's letting us know, I know the problem. And I know the answer. Come, and I'll, I'll share with you the answer. It was a book that I thought was related to employment, or rather, unemployment. I thought there was a book in the Bible called the book of Job. Then I find out, is it like how to write a resume? Is that what that book tells me to do? Or curriculum vitae? Then I became educated by a pastor, and Ariel, that's not the book of Job. What book is that? Job. It's the name of a guy. And all throughout that book, Job asks what question? Why? Why am I suffering? What have I done? Lord, where are you? And Job reaches a point where he repeatedly says, I wish I had never been born. God, why are you not answering me? God, why am I suffering? Not just me. Why did you take my children? 
Have, have, do you know of anyone that has lost a child and it just crushes their spirit? The Bible reveals a God that is not saying, oh, I hope you don't notice. Oh, let's just forget about that. You, you want some goodies? Can I give you a blessing? The Bible presents a God that wants to address the issue sometimes more than we do. And the book of Revelation is the greatest source of answers. It gives us a direction as to where to go to begin to look at the answers as to where evil came from. So we have the book of Revelation presenting to us a very uh, unexpected answer. In the heart of the book of Revelation, we find a cosmic universal war waged between God and the adversary. This is the central point in this prophetic book because we have become part of this cosmic war between good and evil. And um, right before we go into this, I've been in ministry for over 25 years and I used to be able to preach this sermon, this message straight through. But the more as the years progressed, people would walk out. People would get up and leave this presentation. Sometimes I was able to catch up with them and ask them, what, what, what was said? Please explain to me. I want to understand. I want to grow. Did I say something that, that offended you or did not settle well? And the response was, no, you're, you're fine. It's just that you're asking me to believe in fairy tales and goblins. And I just, I'm an educated, sophisticated individual. I have a PhD and I am way too scientifically minded to believe in things like angels or this personified evil called Satan. Please don't ask me to be gullible. I don't want a faith that denies my intelligence and capacity to reason. We don't have time tonight, but there's a QR code, and if you don't know how to use these, just ask one of your grandkids, they'll explain to you. Um, you'll need a phone. Um, I'll actually make it bigger. Uh, I've created a, a additional resources because we don't have time in here. In this short video, I will share with you a Columbia-trained um, psychologist who was an unbelieving individual in the supernatural, who had an encounter with an individual that manifested supernatural capacities. And after trying to treat this individual, he came to the conclusion that there is such a thing as demons these spirit beings that though we may not see is simply that we do not have the instrumentation to detect them, but they are very much present and real in our lives. And this psychologist that is trained in a secular university and is a professional has written an article that when I saw that in the news, I copied and pasted the whole article. And in that video, I'll show you the references and I'll show a quite lengthy quotes from this scientist that at one time did not believe in the existence of angels, demons, or Satan, but now he does. I do that because I can tell you right now that the, the favorite lie of the adversary, the greatest lie that Satan has ever told is that he does not exist. And it is the most educated, the most affluent, those that are higher, highest in the echelon and the, the layers of society, that sometimes feel that the belief in angels are for children, but we are mature and sophisticated. Too mature and sophisticated. Well, this doctor will disagree with that. And I hope you will watch that resource. Um, 
that will help you understand that what I'm asking, what the Bible is asking us to believe is not in fables, is not in fairy tales, but in spiritual realities that affect and touch our lives today. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9 says, And war broke out in what part of the universe? I mean, you and I would not bat an eye if we said war broke out in Afghanistan, right? War broke out again in Israel against the Palestinians. That's been going on since, you know, I, I can remember the news. But war, when you thought of heaven, I mean, what did you think about heaven? I grew up thinking of heaven as places where I can, you know, swim with dolphins and, and eat ginormous papayas and everybody's happy and joyful. But the book of Revelation tells us that there was a time, doesn't say when, in which there this event took place, this painful, destructive event took place, a war, a war. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Now, we're going to pause right here. Last night, we learned two keys from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is highly symbolic, and a lot of, the majority of the imagery comes from what part of the Bible? Old Testament. I want us to keep that in mind. We have this dragon being listed here, fighting against Michael and his angels, but they, the dragon and his angels, did not prevail. They lost the war, and there was no place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old. Do you think that there was a serpent fighting against angels up there in heaven, or is that a symbolic language that God is using here? I told you, God does not make it hard. When you know the keys and begin applying them, the book of Revelation begins to make beautiful sense. Now, I'm going to ask you, do you how are Bible students? Now, the, it doesn't seem simply say the serpent. It says the ancient serpent or the serpent of old, the serpent from a long time back in human history. To what part of the Bible do you think Revelation is pointing us towards? I heard it. Genesis. Is there an encounter in which there is a serpent in the book of Genesis? And with, with these two verses, our eyes are opened. The missionary young man that I told you about that is no longer a believer, when I asked him in a loving way, I was like, what happened? His response was, I kind of like serpents, and I really like apples. In other words, Ariel, I'm in my 30s. I've been to one of the most prestigious universities in Egypt. You want me to believe in talking serpents? You want me to believe in that there was some snake sometime back a thousand years ago talking to a human? I, I'm too intelligent for that. The Bible doesn't ask us to be unintelligent. What the Bible wants us to realize is that we are limited. And our perceptions and our abilities to perceive around us are quite limited. I mean, let's appeal to science for just a few seconds, okay? How many of you guys are familiar with the spectrum of light? Everything that comprises light. You know how much of the spectrum of light, if this is, of course, just representative of the spectrum of light, how much of it is visible light? Super small, narrow, we are limited. These are the spectrum of sound, Guess how much is audible sound to humans? Very narrow. If it wasn't for instrumentation that we've developed, we would not be able to hear some of the sounds elephants make. 
because their sounds are so sub below our capacity to hear frequencies, but they're there. And they can hear each other for miles. We don't. And what the Bible is saying is, you have limited sensory input, but there is another reality that is as real as you. And it wasn't just a serpent in the garden talking to a human being. It was a highly intelligent spiritual being that was using and masking himself with an animal to deceive and trick humanity to distrust God. And that being preexisted the, the, the human race. You know, we humans, the, the, the Bible does so many things at the same time. I'm, I'm like struggling trying to leave stuff out because I want to ex explain so much. There's so much to explain here. How many of you have children or grandchildren? Children help us understand humanity as a whole. We humans think and thought for a long time we're the center of the universe. Evidence of that is that when you, you drive down Mitchell and you see the, the, the sun setting over Lake Cadillac, we, I've said it, <laughs> the sun is, we don't say the earth is orbiting. Not very poetic. We're rotating on our axis, right? It's hard to write a poem with that imagery. But we have said the sun is setting because we thought the earth was at the center of the universe. You know, if you have children, children have a unique way of looking at the world. And I've, I've heard this already from my children and other children's children, other individuals' children. When the day comes, when the one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, it happens around that time, they look at family pictures. And then they see mommy and daddy's wedding pictures, as an example. And then they ask the question, hey, how come I'm not in that photo? Hey, how come my older sister's there? And how come my, my, my older cousin is there? How come I'm not in this photo? And then you say, because you weren't born yet. You, you, you mean you guys were around before I came? I thought the whole universe came into existence when I was born. Children behave that way. And then, of course, they're offended that you were around before they were. How could you have survived without me in your life, Right? What was your source of happiness and joy when I wasn't there? As humans, we are like that too. We think we're, we're it. But what the Bible opens our understanding is that God has other created beings. We are not it. And in fact, we were not even the first ones God created. What the Bible begins to open into our minds is you don't have to deny your intelligence or your reason. In fact, embracing faith expands your intelligence and your ability to reason. Because there are things that cannot be explained with science alone. We'll leave that for another night. Right now, suffice it to say is that the book of Revelation is not asking us to believe in literal dragons flying around or talking serpents. What the Bible is, it is inviting us to accept is that there is a dimension called a spiritual dimension in which there are intelligent, powerful beings that exist and have influence and do and act with humans in, in history. And they can influence our behaviors and they can influence our thoughts and our emotions. And believing in that does not negate your intelligence or your reason. I hope you will look at that video that I shared with you in just a little bit, a little while ago. 
he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Right here, when I would read, my, I told you, my, I was the son of a missionary. My dad would read the Bible to us. And whenever my dad would read this part, I would get upset at God. I'm like, Dad, I've, I've already won science class. I've, I've already, you know, you look at the, the telescope, there's gazillions of galaxies, and the universe has no limit. The, the, the universe is infinite. If the universe is so big, Dad, guess what question I asked my dad when we read this verse? And God cast the dragon and his angels to the earth. Guess what was my question to my dad? With such a vast, infinite space out there, if he had a problem with the enemy, if he had a problem with that dragon, why in the world send him here? Isn't that a logical question? My dad at times re realized that having children is a blessing. They stretch your faith. Because now my dad was like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Why? Why send him here? If he's causing problems up there, why send him here? I mean, imagine, imagine that there's a prison that goes bankrupt and they make arrangements with government officials and they agree that all the rapists and all the violent murderers and, and serial killers, they're going to move next door to you. Would you simply stay quiet and say, well, we'll start baking cookies for their welcome? Is that how you would respond? Or would you start writing letters to your senators and calling your governors and, and trying to call, get the news to, to protest and say, no, this is not fair. Why, send them somewhere else. Why are you sending them to my neighborhood? I have children. So the Bible presents answers that has questions. And then the Bible says, yep, I was hoping you would ask. Two questions that we will address in the rest of this evening. Why was there war in heaven? And why was this Satan? Oh, by the way, Satan or devil are, are not names. They're actually adjectives. Satan is Hebrew. It means enemy. And devil is diabolos in Greek. And it means the enemy. So whenever you read Satan in the New Testament is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Satan, which means the enemy, the adversary. And whenever you read diabolos or devil in the New Testament, they're using the Greek word for enemy, which is diabolos. They both mean the same, the enemy, the one who hates. Why was the enemy, Satan, cast to the earth? Question number one gets answered by Jesus himself. Matthew 13, 24 through 30 says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed what kind of seed, my friends? Good seed in his field. But while man slept, his enemy. What Greek word could we use instead of that English word? Diabolos, devil. What Greek word, I mean, I'm sorry, Hebrew word is Satan. The Greek word would be diabolos, or devil. The enemy came and sowed tares among the weeds and went his way. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? In this parable, the sower is represented by God. And God's response is, the evil seed has an origin. That origin is who? An enemy, a Satan, a devil.
Who is this enemy? Who is this adversary? Different parts of the Bible will begin to give us insight. Like we said last night, 75% of the book of Revelation comes from the Old Testament or makes allusions. So we will use both the book of Revelation along with the Old Testament to shed light. And we will not be able to do this comprehensively tonight. We are barely scratching the surface. Revelation 12, 7 through 9 says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. This individual, this being, was not always called the enemy, was not always referred to as Satan or devil. In fact, the Bible actually gives us insights on his name that God gave him when he was created. In Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, through prophetic vision, Isaiah is given insights into this being that started this war in heaven, and it, it says this, this way, how you are fallen from heaven, oh what, oh who? Oh, Lucifer. Now, I grew up, unfortunately, having the, the television educate me on theological terms. And Lucifer does not mean a, a gentleman or a person dressed in red with horns and a pitchfork. That's not what Lucifer means. Lucifer is a Latin transliteration of the Hebrew word, which means light bearer. The one who carries light. Um, it, the name implied that Lucifer was actually at one time a loyal being, in this case an angel. An angel that had intimacy, intimate access to God's heart. And the revelations that God would give of himself to Lucifer, Lucifer would then convey to all the angels and created beings. Lucifer was at one time an evangelist, one that revealed the heart of God, the heart of love. How could that mind have gone so wrong that the bearer of light is called the prince of darkness in the Bible? O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down from the ground, for you have said in your heart, the Bible tells us, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like who? Now, this is not like I would like to be like Jesus type of I like to be. Lucifer, this does not happen overnight either. The Bible is describing it in abbreviated space. This did not take place overnight. In the same way that Timothy McVeigh, growing up as a little boy, waving an American flag, was not thinking of one day harming other children and taking their lives. That kind of transition from loving America, loving its freedom and fighting for it, and one day becoming a terrorist to the very country you were born into, does not happen overnight. And to have been an exalted being with a fortified mind, an intelligent mind, you cannot go from adoring or worshiping God to now speaking and saying things such as, I think I can do a better job than him. This is what prophecy does. It begins to reveal that which we could have never understood on our own. 
And in this revelation, we will see in upcoming nights, this has a lot to do with us, especially this weekend, Saturday night, especially when we talk about the seal of God from the book of Revelation, we will see why all of this is included in the Bible, because this speaks to our experience too. This wanting to be like God. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 28, verses 12 through 19, says this, you were the seal of, and that word is very important, you were the seal of what? Perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. When Lucifer came and was created by God, God did not create him defective. God created him completely perfect. How could he become evil? How could something perfect become imperfect? How could something that God creates good become evil? We will see how prophecy, how the prophetic writings help us understand this process. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone, sorry. You were the seal of perfection, full of uh, wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone, oh, it got left it out, was your covering. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you, you were in the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the fiery stones. Sorry, the text got left out. And this last text, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were what, my friends? You were perfect from the onset, but there was a day when something was found inside of you, iniquity. And what was that iniquity? This is where comparing scripture with scripture comes in handy. We already read the kind of iniquity that was found in Lucifer's heart. I will sit on the highest and the heights of the stars. I will put my throne above the stars. I will be like the most high. This tells this a lot, says a lot about the human condition today. Human trafficking, I mean, there was a film out just recently, Sound of Freedom, speaking about the trafficking of children, and we become disgusted with such behaviors that children could be exploited in such horrible ways. And we think about uh, financial exploitations of the poor and all these evil, evil, evils, but pride doesn't seem too evil for us. And yet this is what brought down this bright being from heaven. Pride and arrogance led him to think that a created being could become God. You were perfect in your ways from the days you were created till iniquity was found in you. And this, coupled together with Ezekiel and Isaiah, we see the, the big picture. You were perfect in your ways till iniquity was found in you, for you have said in your heart, I will be like the Most High. The unwarranted questionings of God's character of love, the contradicting desire of a created being, wanted to be worshiped of God, these reasonings began to develop inside the mind of Lucifer to the point where he was convinced he would do a better job than God. And that is what brought evil into existence. Wish we could spend more time exploring these. But you need to understand that the Bible calls evil a mystery. Not because we can't understand evil. We understand evil quite well. Cancers, diseases. I mean, let's just think about the pandemic and all the evils that happened there at so many levels. We, evil is not a mystery in that sense that what is evil? We know what it is. The Bible describes evil as a mystery, describes sin as a mystery because there's no reason for its existence. 
Sin is not described as a mystery because we can't comprehend and experience evil. What the Bible is trying to present is that there was no reason for Lucifer to rebel against God. God had lavished him with privileges and honors and revelations that no other angel had. He knew the heart of God to be a God God of love, but Lucifer allowed something to be birthed inside of him for no reason. And it was envy and covetousness and pride. What drives our economic system, what drives every economy in this world. So the first question, why was there war in heaven? The highest created being made perfect and holy, allowed the mystery of sin to take seed in its mind and heart. He grew to covet the worship God alone is worthy of. He declared, I will be like God. The other question is, why was Satan cast to the earth? Like I asked my dad. In Genesis 2, 16 through 17, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely have what experience? You will. I want to, let's be intelligent and reasoning for just a second. Before God told Adam and Eve about the existence of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that if they ate of it they would die, did, bless you, did Adam and Eve know of anything that was evil? After God tells Adam and Eve, there is this one tree that you may not eat of it. If you eat of this tree called the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat of this tree, you will die. Is dying evil that God meant for humans to die? No, the Bible is clear. For the wages of sin is, death came because of the existence of sin. Just think for a second. Did Adam and Eve know... Adam and Eve know of something that was evil at this point. They knew that if they ate of that tree, what would happen? And that is an evil thing. So in that sense, they knew evil. This is something that God does not will for us. This is toxic. This is harmful. This is hurtful. This will yield what? Death. And death is evil. So in this sense, Adam and Eve were sinless, perfect, and holy, yet they had a knowledge of things that were evil, and it did not affect them. But there is another kind of knowledge of evil, and that is what takes place next. Then the serpent, this is the serpent of old, we read in the book of Revelation, said to the woman, so I'm going to pop quiz you right now. Is this truly a snake talking to Eve? Is this really a python talking to? Because this is my friend said, I'm not Mowgli, I cannot believe in this stuff. Is this really a serpent or is it another being talking to Eve through the serpent? It's another being. And the book of Revelation has shed light. It's complementing with the book of Genesis. The serpent said, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the days you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The same desire that Lucifer had in his heart, he implanted into the mind of humans. Listen, my friends, the war in heaven was not like Luke Skywalker with lasers and lightsabers. It was a war of words. Words can sway nations. Words can destroy nations. Have you ever seen Hitler talking to the masses and the masses cheering him on? believing his words. You will not die. In fact, 
God knows the day you eat of that fruit, you will be just like him. I want you to think about those words. Was Lucifer, was Satan by this point, the, the enemy, was he talking about the fruit? How did he convince a human being, holy and perfect, to willingly choose to disobey God's command to not eat of that tree? Look at the words. God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will surely become like him, not die. Those words are designed to paint God in what light? Can Eve, should Eve trust God according to the, the words of the enemy? No, because God is a, if God says you will die and the enemy says you will not surely die, that means that God is a liar. And evidence of this is if you eat of it. If you eat of it, God will be afraid. He's trying to keep from you something he knows will threaten his position. And humans made a choice. When the book of Revelation says that, and he was cast to the earth, it was not an arbitrary choice. Lucifer said, um, they haven't made a decision in this issue, in this war. They need to hear my version of things. And God said, all right, go ahead. Lucifer came masterfully, presented his case before humanity, and humanity made a choice to distrust God's word and trust whose words? The words of the enemy. That's why the enemy is here. God did not arbitrarily say, you're causing problems, you're annoying me, go and bother the humans. That's not what happened. We humans chose to trust the one who hates us over the one who loves us. And we repeat that choice more so because of sin. You know, one of those manifestations as we are young is manifested when we as young people begin to trust our friends that hardly know hardly anything about life at the expense of trusting our parents who love us and feed us and have raised us. Have you ever had that experience where your friends led you to distrust your parents? Good judgment. One of my biggest regrets in childhood were when I trusted my friends that were the same age I was over my parents who were much older and had experience and loved me. It is the same manifestation that we saw in the garden of choice. So the woman took of the fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. The war in heaven was fought in the same manner as on earth. God's character of love was put in question through words. By the way, that's a picture of a black mamba. It's a serpent in um, Africa, quite large. And most snakes run from you. This one runs to you. And one bite is enough to kill a man. Through poisonous words, doubts about whether God was a God of love were craftily and subtly expressed. And they entered the human mind and humanity has, from Genesis chapter 3, naturally had an inclination to distrust God and his word. We distrust God and his word. That is one of the core effects that sin has had in the human heart. We distrust God. And the work of the gospel is to shed light into God's character so that we can begin to recognize we have been distrusting the one that has loved us with an everlasting love. So why, the, the questions as to why of evil, God is not to blame. I'm going to skip this illustration this evening for the sake of time. 
I'll explain to you later why Clint Eastwood was there. Um, God is love. That is the essence of the gospel. And because of that, something that many humans struggle with is that God created beings with freedom of choice. See that short verse that we read at the very beginning of this presentation? Demands freedom. Otherwise, you can't have love. I wish I could take a picture of you of this uh, doggy that we got for Christmas for my daughters. It's a cute little guy. Wiggles his tail, barks, and um, they haven't played with him in about two weeks. Actually, like two days after they got from Puerto Rico, they haven't touched the, the doggy. Um, and he's been in the same position that we left him. The battery's probably right out by now. <laughs> you know, we kind of, I like that puppy because he hasn't urinated anywhere in the house. <laughs> hasn't chewed my uh, slippers and he hasn't gnawed on my furniture. Which doggy would you prefer? A non-urinating, not chewing your, your uh, flip-flops kind of doggy or a real one? That though they may urinate where they ought not, or they may playfully chew on your leather flip uh, sheep <laughs> flip flops, they will also show you genuine love. Which one would you rather have? Would you go to Amazon and buy a child that's robotic with a remote control? Go to bed. Oh, this is awesome. <laughs> Worth every penny. Do you do vacuum? <laughs> do the dishes. Do your homework. How many of you would love to have a child like that? <laughs> I have to pray for you. <laughs> you have children. <laughs> you may be at home pointing the remote control at them. So hug me. Kiss me. And of course the big one. Tell me you love me. Would you want robot child? Or would you want the child that sometimes keeps you up at night? I would not trade my children. They're not perfect. But when my little ones come running to the door and I walk in and the little one attaches herself to my thigh and the other one tackles me and drags me down, and they shower me with kisses, every single one of those means everything. And when they look at me and tell me, Papi, te amo. Daddy, I love you. It's real. Because they could choose to not say it. God is love. And when he created us, when he created angels, when he created every intelligent being, he created us with the capacity to reject him and to deny him and to rebel against him because otherwise to love him would just be an automated program thing. Because God is love, he created beings with the freedom to choose otherwise. Huge risk. We're running out of time tonight, so we need to conclude. The lie about God. This is the lie that many in this world believe. God has abandoned us to the evil and suffering he has caused. He is the originator of this. We suffer and creation suffers. It's God to blame. God is the one responsible for this. You may think, oh, that's probably just old thinking, mythological thinking. No, my friends, read your insurance policy. Read your insurance policy for your phone. In it, you will find God, written by secular lawyers from Chicago. 
in which they will say tornadoes, fires, lightning, and earthquakes. We don't cover those. Those are acts of God. A secular society is such a hypocrite because they don't believe in God. They're atheists. But when it comes to finding a reason not to pay for your house sinking into an earthquake, it's because, oh, God did that to you. You take it up with him. This is the lie about God. When we see this in the news, millions of people look to the sky and say, why? Where were you? Where are you? Don't you see us? Can't you see us? Can't you see our hurt? Can't you see our brokenness? Can't you see our tears? Can't you see our hearts breaking? Do you not care? Satan loves it. When we humans believe that we've been abandoned and our suffering means nothing to God. I hope you come tomorrow night. We will spend two nights on the answer God has given humanity as to how God has related to the evil sin has brought. But tonight we'll close with these words. This is the truth about God. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. 1 John 3.16 tells us, By this we know love, because God has laid down his life for us. He suffered for us, therefore he suffers with us. From the entrance of sin into the universe, the one who has suffered the most from his destructive effects has been God. These words... With this pain, through my tears, in this storm, I still believe God is love. I want to share with you a brief video of a young man who had to wrestle with this. His name is Nick McNaughty. I want you to hear his story tonight. All right. Um... What word would you use to describe how you feel right now? One word? Yeah. Blessed. This is my little love, my little bug. Hi, my name is Nick Magnotti. I'm 27 years old. Uh, I, am a, I have stage four appendix cancer. And uh, this is my seven month old daughter, Austin. My wife and I had her together. I've been married to Elisa for five years now. I was first diagnosed with cancer. I was 24 years old. And, uh, I was scared. I was at first. Uh, I remember when I got the phone call. I was, uh, I'd just woken up. I think it was like eight in the morning. I was still recovering from the surgery when they had removed the cancer. And Elise was in the kitchen and I was in the living room and I answered the phone and it's my surgeon. He tells me that I have cancer. And uh man, talk about getting the wind knocked out of you, that was a that was a hard phone call. We uh at least I sat down on the couch and we cried 
decided that we were going to hit it head on. We were going to take this, take this beast and, you know, make our own. The chemo has gotten to a point where it's no longer doing what it's supposed to do. Uh, even though it's continuing treatment, my pain was getting worse. So it's an indication that the cancer is spreading faster than the chemo can kill it. So um, we decided to stop chemotherapy just because chemo makes me feel so cruddy. Want to be able to enjoy every single day to its fullest, and when you feel, you know, so ill you can't get out of bed, it's kind of hard to do that. I'm not scared of death. It's human nature. I want to be scared, and I think it's strange that I'm not scared. I, I don't. It's strange. I know why I don't feel scared. I know it's because God has given me this peace and this blessing that everyone's dying. Um, this morning, there's people who get up and go to work, and they're not going to come home tonight, um, and their families had no idea that was going to happen. They didn't get a chance to plan for it. They didn't get a chance to, you know, set aside videos. They didn't get a chance to do birthday cards. Um, so I live every day with the appreciation for today and not concerned with what tomorrow will bring. We could have a meter hit the, hit the world and everyone would die. And my cancer would be pointless because it wouldn't have been what, what would took me out. And I was so concerned and focused on that. And then that happens and that would just, to me that's a waste. I feel blessed because I'm living every person's dream. I get to spend every day with people that I love, and I get to do anything and everything that I want to do. I get to, you know, if Lisa and I want to take our little baby Austin to the aquarium, we can go to the aquarium. The Lord has blessed us with uh, the means and the ability to be able to do that. The relationship that's developed, the Mount that I've gone to know God. I I just wish everyone could get to experience what I feel. I just feel so blessed to be able to, um, you know, be up in the middle of the night in pain and be able to talk to God and be inspired to, you know, try and help people. And I just feel lucky that even though I'm experiencing this pain, that I'm given the opportunity to change lives, you know, in, 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 in the Lord's name, I'm getting the opportunity to help people. Just for me, I hope that they will give it a thought one day at church, you know, something. One step in the direction, whether it's Googling just a Bible passage, reading a chunk of something, you know, seeing if there's anything that appeals to you in any way, shape, or form. Mom, do you want to say how much you love Austin? She your little angel. You're my sweet, sweet girl, Austin. I love you so much. See you again soon. She is my little bundle of joy. I love her so much. And this is another reason why we're doing this video is because I want her to know that her daddy loved the Lord. And that her daddy wants to help people so that she will have the same heart. Um, you know, I'm just talking to God about how I know that even if I'm not here, that he's her father and he's gonna take care of her. He's gonna protect her and he's gonna watch out for her and he's gonna provide for her. I would love to be a part of raising her every single year of her life, but any every day the Lord gives me with her is just the biggest blessing, being a bigger blessing than I, I deserve. Words can't describe how it feels to have her as my daughter and to be blessed with her. Um, so I do worry, but that's just because I'm human. Um, I know that Austin is going to be taken care of, and I know that the Lord has 
big plans for her. I feel like she's gonna accomplish some pretty impressive things in her life. Smiles? You got a proud daddy, Austin, already. So, you're doing good. Because of Jesus, this is not all we get. Tomorrow night, we will continue looking at this Jesus that has solved the problem of pain, evil, and suffering in our experience. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that your word does not leave us in the dark in regards to why we, we hurt, why hurricanes and cancers wreak havoc in our lives, and it seems so random, so pointless. But tonight we have seen, Father, that this has not originated in your mind or your heart, but that through your son Jesus, you have sent him to set the wrong right and to heal us through his stripes. Father, in the next night, we will be exploring your son Jesus and the work he has come to do on this planet. But tonight, thank you, Lord, that we know you're not to blame for the divorce. You're not to blame for the cancers. You are not to blame for the grandmas and the grandchildren and the pain and the suffering that we have. It is the enemy, the adversary that has done it and not you. Father, tonight we leave convicted. We are being invited to believe in a God that is truly, holy, and completely a God of love, a God we can trust. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Father.